we'll focus, well, really, pretty much on the whole passage as we read it. But in verse 18, we read that Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. The Lord descended upon Mount Sinai in fire. Now, already uh, today we saw uh, the people of God, Israel, or the church if you like, we saw the church coming to Mount Sinai where they are going to stay for a little over a year. And uh, there God is going to, if you remember, going to give them, first of all, a law to live by which will be built around the Ten Commandments, which you'll remember are addressed to them as individuals. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. You singular. So there's a law to live by with the Ten Commandments at at its heart. And then again there's a law to worship by with the tabernacle and the priesthood at its heart. And the primary reason God is re-promulgating the law and elaborating the system of worship is to deepen the understanding of the people in connection with his holiness on the one hand and their own sin on the other. Both these need deepening. Uh, That's true of ourselves. It's probably true all our lives long. And especially at certain periods, we need to deepen our understanding of God's holiness and the flip side of that, in a way, our own sin. Along with that, too, there was a, a deepening in their understanding of the way of salvation. Prior to this point, there was the simple ordinance of sacrifice. Substitution. An animal killed blood covering and forgiveness. But this suddenly becomes an elaborate tabernacle full of types, figures and symbols which will all speak of the great mediator to come. The great sacrifice that God has appointed for sinners. The sacrifice that at last will take away the sins of the world. So it's a deepening process, deepening of sense of God's holiness, sense of personal and corporate sin, and a sense of forgiveness through sacrifice, the sacrifice of our Lord. So that, or those are the main reasons why the law is given at this time. But I closed in the morning by saying this, it's not just a matter of deepening their understanding of these things. Uh, The understanding, of course, has to do with the head. It's to do with the mind. It's not just that. That's important. But in Christianity and all through religion, through faith, the heart is just as involved as the head. The whole man and the whole woman have to be dedicated to the Lord. So he's not just concerned to deepen their understanding. He is also concerned to deepen their awareness of these things. For want of a better expression, he wants them to feel these things. He wants them to feel 
the holiness of God. He wants them to feel their own sinnership and to feel the power and the wonder of forgiveness through the means that he has appointed inside the elaborate tabernacle system of our priest approaching God through a sacrifice. Um, Faith is always about touching the mind as well as touching the heart. And that is why when God gives the law to live by and the law to worship by, he doesn't simply give it. He doesn't simply give it to Moses, but he appears along with it. He appears in the special phenomena of earthquake, cloud, fire, smoke, and the sound of a trumpet. In other words, you could pretty much say that the, the requirement of God's holiness is accompanied um, with, with visions and experiences of God's holiness. So that we don't just know it, but we do feel it. In other words, what we have here really is an encounter with God. Not just a revelation from God but an encounter with God. And that, friends, is a very important thing to have. Not just once in life, but many times in life. And there are some times particularly when God needs to bring his holiness before us in very vivid ways. The first of these is one that we know very well and is quite obvious. Uh, and that's when we don't know God's holiness at all. If, if we are sinners, dead in trespasses and sins, we don't really understand what the holiness of God is. It may be sitting there somewhere in the background, we might be conscious that there is a God, that he is a righteous God, that he is a God who judges everybody. We may even be conscious that there is a heaven and that there is a hell. But that doesn't mean that we really know what understand the holiness of God. Uh, It's something that's way beyond our reach and way beyond our understanding. But of course every Christian here knows that when God is bringing us to himself he makes us aware of that holiness. Bit by bit or maybe even quite suddenly he makes us aware of his holiness. How high and exalted it is how righteous his righteousness is, that God is altogether other, that there is a vast chasm between us and himself. And along with that, of course, the further he is up, the further we are down, the greater our sins appear. And it is that that drives us into the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. So certainly we need some kind of impression on our hearts of the holiness of God before we become Christians. And when he's bringing us to himself, he gives us that. Now, it may be the case that some of you, or even one of you, is gradually coming to the understanding of what it means for God to be holy and you to be becoming a sinner. And one effect that that might have is to depress you, to cast you down and to say that there's maybe less hope of you being a Christian than there was before. Now, I would put it 
the other way altogether. Uh, I don't want you miserable or downcast uh, in any way, except if it's because you know that God is really holy and you yourself a sinner. Without that, you will not seek for salvation. So there's a certain kind of miserableness that's good before the Lord heals you. But there are other times too when fresh revelations of the holiness of God are necessary. And the first of these is when God is calling us back to himself. It's one thing for God to be calling us to himself, but it's also just as real a thing when God calls us back to himself. And of course, the reason he has to reveal his holiness to us then is because we've forgotten it. We have practically forgotten that God is holy. It's possible for a man or woman to tremble before God and some years after not to tremble before God at all until God reveals himself again in his holiness. Now the only reason for that is backsliding. That's the only reason for that. But when God is bringing us all back to himself, he will re-impress his holiness on that soul. The other occasion on which God will impress his holiness is when he is calling us to a special task of one kind or another. Before he puts us out on that task, we need to be humbled and strengthened. Humble in the light of our weakness before God, strengthened in the light of God's strength over us. And a vision of holiness does that. I'll explain that in a moment as I go on. But let me first say this, that it's easy to forget God's holiness. I wonder how many of us have at certain points in our lives. I wonder how many of the Lord's true people have forgotten to some degree or another the holiness of God that once impressed itself upon you. You walked in the fear of the Lord all the day long. But that has been forgotten. Israel herself, when she comes to the mountain, you know... How impressed was she with the holiness of God? Well, that's a good question. She had seen great wonders. There's no doubt about that. Great interventions, great miracles. The Lord had taken water from a rock. He had rained manna from the sky. He had parted the sea. He's powerful. Is he holy? Well, his holiness surely was evidenced when he judged Egypt and slew their firstborn. But for themselves, there was a covering of blood and protection. So holiness was something that was against them, not against us. With us was the power of God. Great wonders. Our friends, we all need an awareness of the holiness of God. It's not just for Egypt to know it. Israel's got to know it. And if the church doesn't know the holiness of God, how on earth will the world see it? It's quite a remarkable phenomenon that very often in the New Testament, as we'll see in a moment, as in the Old, it is the holiness of God 
that actually proves an attractive power to the sinners when God is calling them. You may find that surprising. The, the wisdom of the world would say that the more worldly your behaviour, the more likely you are to attract people to church. Well, as someone once said, what you draw people with is what you draw them to. If you draw them with worldliness, you will draw them to worldliness. But there is an astonishing way in which God uses the holiness of his church to become something that calls sinners into it. We'll see some examples of that just in a moment. But don't let us forget, don't you forget, as a Christian today, that the God you serve is holy. Don't lose sight of it. David lost sight of it. You remember that famous incident when he took the ark back into Jerusalem. Now the story of the ark is a, an interesting and instructive story itself. But for a, a long time it had lain, um, it was being kept uh, apart. David had <coughs> received a message from God that the temple was to be built in Jerusalem. So the first bit of the temple that was to be assembled was the ark and it was to be brought into Jerusalem. Now you have an account in Second Samuel and in Second, uh, uh, what is it? First Chronicles. It's Second Second Samuel um, and I think First Chronicles. You have an account of how the ark is brought into Jerusalem, and you might remember that there there was great uh, re rejoicing. Um, the recently appointed uh, Levites were playing their instruments. There was singing. There was uh, religious dancing and celebration as the ark was making its way to Jerusalem. Then, of course, you'll remember that the cart on which the ark was being carried um, was in danger of falling because the oxen stumbled. The oxen who were pulling the cart, they stumbled. And the ark was in danger of falling. And one of the priests, a man called Uzzah, went out and he touched the ark um, to steady it. A good man, I'm sure. A good man, I'm sure. And a good man, from one perspective, doing a... Well, if you can't say he was doing a good thing, he had a good motive. He wanted to protect and steady the ark of God. God immediately struck him dead. And the celebration and the rejoicing stopped. Just in a moment... The joy and the gladness was turned to anguish and pain. Right in the middle of a religious celebration that was led by David, the man of God, death. Death. And of course, we're told in the passage that David's first response was anger. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah, which means a breach against Uzzah, which means that God broke out against Uzzah and David was so perplexed and angry too that he sent the ark back to where it was with the thought well who, who can bear the company of this ark well who can indeed you know um, who can really bear the presence of God what a question who can dwell with everlasting burnings uh, some people treat God as, as though he's so easy to be around he's not that easy to be around Absolutely not. David went home for three months. For three months. And then he was ready to take back the ark a second time. 
This time it was different. No cart, no oxen. The Levite carried the ark on their shoulders with poles, not even touching it themselves. What had David learned? Do what God says. Do it God's way. And you'll have God's blessing. That's what he learned. You know what he had done with the ark? He carried it. Here we go, the way the Philistines carried it. That's how the Philistines had sent the ark back to Israel, on a cart pulled by oxen. And in the twinkling of an eye, the church decides to do the same thing. See the church doing this all the time. You know, the, the world is this, the church says, oh, let's do that. Let's sing that. Let's play that. Let's have a drama sketch in the middle of our worship. No. Because that's not what God says is to be done. David forgot that God was holy. David forgot that God's holiness meant that when he says something is to be done, it's to be done in God's way. He forgot it. And so God reminded him, but it cost a man's life. The scripture tells us that David was afraid of God that day. That's the David who can say, I love the Lord because my voice and prayer she did hear. David was afraid of God that day. And if, if you need to relearn fear, then God will teach it. Teach it. If you want to move into the New Testament, I mean, there are always people who say, well, that's the Old Testament. <laughs> okay. But in any case, suppose you want an illustration from the New Testament. If you were in the early church in Jerusalem, which was full of joy and gladness, if you were in worshipping in the congregation, uh, you'd have been quite shocked that God visited that congregation with death. You'll remember that Ananias and Sapphira were both called to the front, and once they lied about what they had done, God struck them dead there and then. First, Ananias, and then shortly afterwards, his wife, for telling a lie. Now you say, well, <clears throat> why doesn't God strike all liars down? Well, he will one day. Unless they repent, he will strike all liars down. That's a fact. But sometimes God does something. And very often he does something at the beginning of a thing. Here at the beginning of the life of a church, he, as it were, almost interrupts their joy and says, I am not to be trifled with. Lies are not small in my sight. And two dead bodies in the congregation that morning was a reminder to the New Testament church that God is serious about sin and he's serious about his own holiness. Um, and just as was the case with David, we're told that he feared God that day, we're also told on that day, in connection with Ananias and Sapphira's death, we're told that fear came upon all the church. And here you have these people running around today saying, we should never have fear. You should never have fear in the presence of God. That's not what the Bible says. Fear came upon the New Testament church that morning. Two verses later we're told that believers were added to the Lord. Now that goes back to what I said a minute ago. 
you think you think that people living in the fear of the Lord is a switch off it's not at least if the Lord is working it's not there's a recognition that God is in the midst it's like what Paul said to the church in Corinth he says if, if you're speaking in tongues there you know, I'm not going into that just now but if you, he says you're speaking in tongues and no one can understand what you're saying if an unbeliever walks in he'll think you're mad but he says if, if you are prophesying if you are clearly declaring the word of God the unbeliever will recognize that God is in your midst and he will be convicted and he will be and he will fall down on his face and give glory to God you'll notice that the that the effect that the word of God has on these unbelievers is to prostrate them with conviction on the ground fear is a, an essential part of the life of the church and when the church forgets it if we're fortunate enough God will remind us of it. And it's good to be reminded of it. David may initially have been angry, but three months later he was a profoundly happy man. That God corrected him. And they came back to understand the holiness of God. Now friends, if, if people and churches lack reverence, it's because they don't know God's holiness. Simple as... And there's a, there's a lot of that. There are churches where you, you couldn't even begin to imagine that God was holy and transcendent. He's just a friend. A friend. And he's a friend that wouldn't hurt a fly. It's like a Santa Claus, really. He just always gives you gifts. Most churches around today are not really New Testament churches. That's the sad fact of the matter. And if you feel that you've somehow lost a sense of the holiness of God, ask for it. Ask for it. Now, God might answer that prayer by fearful works and righteousness. I have no idea how God will answer that prayer. But it's worth asking and it's worth getting an answer because the last thing we want is to walk around as an irreverent people who don't know that God is holy the other occasion I mentioned when God needs to reveal his holiness is when he's called to special service of some kind Isaiah, you'll remember was called to be a prophet he was called to bring the word of God directly to the nation not through the priests, not through anybody else, but God, as it were, is circumventing that and he's sending a prophet directly into the church. Before Isaiah goes anywhere, he first of all sees the thrice holy God on the throne. And he's awed, very deeply awed with a sense of the majesty and the grandeur of the God that he sees in Isaiah chapter 6. And of course, once he sees him, what does he say? He says, woe is me, he says, for I'm undone, I'm finished, finished. Because, and this is a strange thing, he says, uh, I am of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He's so conscious of his uncleanness 
But why his lips? Well, he was being called to speak. Being called to speak. Now, um, I don't want to go off track here too much, but the, the inspiration of the Bible through various people like David and Moses and Peter and James and John and so on, the inspiration of God works in a certain way. The Spirit of God uses the free thinking processes of people to speak the way that they would speak. But in such a way as to ensure that the words that they speak and write are the precise words that God wants them, once spoken and written. Hope we understand that. That's why Peter sounds like Peter, John sounds like John. I mean, you read John and you say, well, that's not the same writer as Peter. You know, you do, you do say he's the same author because it's amazing how they're all saying the same thing. You know, all the writers of the Bible are writing uh, a long time distant from each other. There's about 1,500 years between Moses, who opens the Bible, and the Apostle John, who closes the Bible, the book of Revelation. You've got one and a half thousand years. Some of the writers are lawyers, some are kings, some are shepherds, and so on. You get the one message. You can't deny that. I mean, you're, you're going through the whole thing and you're getting the one message. There's this incredible feeling that although you've got 66 books, you've really just got one. That's why the 66 books are bound together and called the Bible, because it's the product of one mind, it's the mind of God. But nonetheless, the language is different. John's language is his own. Peter's language is his own. Now, that's a roundabout way for me to get to say what I want to say. And it's just this, that if you read the prophecy of Isaiah... No, I'm not a profound Hebrew scholar, but even I can recognise this. That the prophecy of Isaiah is one of the most beautiful writings in the whole of the Old Testament. Which means that God used his existing gift of language and sanctified it in such a way as to speak and write the words that God wanted written in the style of Isaiah himself. Which is another roundabout way of saying that this man had every reason for thinking his lips to be very clean. His lips to be able, that his speech was clear, he was articulate, he, he was an orator in some way or another, but not when he saw God. All our gifts, even our natural gifts, you'll have yours, I'll have mine. They become nothing, nothing when we see the Lord of glory. And when the Lord of glory says, you speak, the person who has seen God says, I can't speak. I can't speak. The person who hasn't seen the holiness of God will say, I will speak. But the person who's seen it will say, my lips are unclean. But you've got to believe that before you can speak for God. And before you do anything for God, you've got to realize that what you've got is nothing, but what God can give you is everything. He sees God's holiness, and then he goes. Notice, by the way, that although the initial effect of God's holiness is almost to crush him, when God actually asks the question, who will go for me, or who will go for us, because it's a trinity, Isaiah says, but I will. Um, it's amazing, you see, because God's holiness, the first impression is always to crush, but it always attracts the Christian. It always attracts the Christian. 
The Christian finds God's holiness irresistibly beautiful. That's why it's called in the Bible the beauty of holiness. And the Christian wants to be beautiful like that, to be, to be made beautiful with the same garment. When God called Peter, of course, to preach the gospel, Christ performed a miracle of the draught of the fishes. Peter's response was to go down on his knees before Christ and say, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And then Christ says that I will make you a fisher of men. How could he be without seeing holiness? Paul himself, of course, was arrested by a powerful vision of Christ's holiness. We're then told mysteriously that Paul went for three years to Arabia. What on earth did he do there? Have you ever wondered what Paul did for three years in Arabia between his conversion and coming back to preach the gospel? Well, one thing we know is that the Roman province of Arabia included the Sinaitic wilderness and included Mount Sinai. And there was a longing in all God's people to go where God had really revealed himself. You remember when Elijah was depressed and uh, when he was so despondent about the cause of God and when he thought it was just never going to prosper, he ran out to Mount Sinai to have an encounter with God and God granted him an encounter there. I wonder if that's the vicinity that Paul was in. For three years being taught the holiness of God and that's a better education than any seminary can give you. If God can really impress the holiness of God upon your soul, well, that's the greatest gift you can give to others. Robert Murray McShane, of course, famously said that, that the greatest uh, blessing he could give to his congregation would be his own holiness, that God would sanctify him, that that would be the means, the greatest means of blessing for his own congregation. And friends, there is a vast difference between a, a messenger who stands to you before you in the name of God who has known the holiness of God and a messenger who has not. A messenger who has never really encountered the holiness of God will never be a messenger from God to you. They will become a master of ceremonies. They will become entertainers. They will become joke tellers. But they will never impress upon you the sense that God is holy and that you are a sinner, and that you need to be reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll never impress that upon you. They'll be more concerned with making you laugh. I'm sure it was yourselves I told this to. I can't remember. Uh, but if it was, it still bears telling again. Uh, during the time of the American Civil War, as I'm starting to tell it, I think it was you, but anyway, it does bear telling again. During the American Civil War, uh, when the Confederate soldiers were fighting, um, a man was sent to preach to them in the morning before they went out to battle and uh, he had just come from seminary and he's one of these people who tried to pass himself off you know as being quite cool and trendy that was always the case even back then and he said to them in the morning he says I'm not sure about preaching he says would you rather I preach to you or would you rather me just tell you a funny story to raise your morale before you go out to fight and one of the people I mean at least there were people in those days uh, there were people, there were men and there were women like Jenny Geddes who threw her stool at a wooden minister. But there was a man amongst the Confederate ranks and he stood up and said, you're here, he says, uh, to preach to us 
or to tell us a funny story, us who are going out to battle, probably going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ before the day is out, he says, and you're asking us whether we want to hear a sermon or a funny story? Please, he said, tell us a funny story because we don't want to hear you preach. And that is exactly true. You don't want a master of ceremonies. You don't want an entertainer. None of that is any good. I need to know the holiness of God myself. Whenever I lose sight of it, I need God to bring it back to me. You need the same thing too. If we are living the Christian life or life in the church as though there is really no hell, no consequence to unbelief, really, then we are letting God down profoundly and who knows where we are ending up ourselves. The world can sometimes see the difference. So God is going to impress his holiness upon him. Not just by what he says, but by what he does, or the way that he says it. And he first of all gets from them this clear commitment to serve. He says, if you'll obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be a special treasure to me. And of course, uh, Moses lays these terms before the people in verse 7. He called for the elders, who are the representatives of the people, and laid before them the words that the Lord commanded. And the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Verse 8. Now there are some people who are critical of that response. Um, in theological circles, they're, they're called dispensationalists. It doesn't matter for the moment uh, who exactly these people are. But they're people who say, in connection with this verse, that Israel took a wrong turn here. That they had been living by grace till this point. And suddenly it's as though they become a legal people and say, we are able to do everything that you ask us to do and we're willing to do it. And so these people say that God, as it were, took another turn with them. And God dealt with them in a severely legal way for years and years and years until this kind of works religion was purged out of them. Now, I can't say strongly enough that that's way off the mark. There's no evidence whatsoever for interpreting the people's response here like that. The people's response here is what we would call an evangelical response. It's, it's saying effectively, you are calling us to keep the commandments. Well, so we will do. Is that not what we've pledged ourselves to as Christians? You say, well, we can't keep them perfectly. I know. So did they know that they wouldn't keep them perfectly. That's why the sacrifice was part of the law. That's why the tabernacle was there. That's why the priest was there. Because no one would keep it perfectly. But that does not negate the fact that the commandments are there to be kept. And that a resolution is required on our part to keep them. An evangelical response. I mean, that's what Paul says in Romans 12. I beseech you by the mercies of God, he says. The God who has provided such a great salvation, I beseech you in the light of that, that you present yourselves, your entire bodies, as living sacrifices to God. Living, walking sacrifices to God. 
your hands, your feet, your ears, your eyes, your lips. Because that is your reasonable service. He gave himself for you. You give yourself for him. And if you were to say today, yes, Lord, that is right and fair and equitable. Is that works? No, it's an evangelical consecration. And that's what the people are doing here. They are consecrating themselves to the Lord. But it's after that that the Lord reveals his holiness. And he asks the people or he commands the people to prepare for that revelation of his holiness. The first thing he asks them to do through Moses, you notice that Moses is the mediator of this covenant. All the communication is through him until we come to the Ten Commandments. He asks Moses, or he tells Moses, to tell the people to consecrate themselves. Verse 10, go to the people and consecrate themselves today and tomorrow. Now, to consecrate themselves means to set themselves apart. They're to prepare. They do that primarily in prayer and in meditation. To get ready to meet God. And in connection with that, they're required to do two things. And they're both to do with cleanness. And the first is to wash their clothes. In verse 10, let them wash their clothes. Verse 14, again, we're told that the people washed their clothes as God commanded them to. Now clearly that's a symbolic act. It just represents putting away the dirt of the world that accumulates on you. It's rather similar in that respect to Moses taking the sandals off his feet when he was called into the presence of the burning bush. It's a disassociation from the dust of the world coming into the presence of the one who is holy. So washing the clothes was a reminder of that. The other is that they were given a command to abstain from sexual relations. Husbands with wives, wives with husbands. Now that's not because sexual relations between husbands and wives are unclean or impure. Quite the opposite. It's God who appointed it. That was God's means of Binding a man and woman as one before the Lord and of raising a godly seed before the Lord. In fact, that act itself and the child that comes from it, I would argue, is as close as you can get. Uh, this is going down another road here, but it's as close as you can get to, a, to a, a, an analogy of the Trinity in this life. The way in which human, the single human nature divided into male and female, can bind together as one and produce or beget a third. It's as close an analogy to the way in which the divine nature between the Father and the Son um, produces a Holy Spirit who is begotten from them, from eternity. My, my point just now is that God appointed that. Nothing unclean, nothing sinful about it. Well, of course, providing it's within marriage. As the writer to the Hebrews says, it is the marriage bed that is undefiled, the bed of the husband and the wife. But this idea of a husband and a wife keeping themselves from each other for a time is something that still lasts under the new covenant. 
when uh, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he tells each man to have his own wife and each woman her own husband. If you want to read this later, it's 1 Corinthians 7. And interestingly, he says that the wife doesn't have authority over her own body. The husband does. And then surprisingly, he says that the husband doesn't have authority over his own body. The wife does. That's surprising because everyone thinks the Bible would just say, oh, the husband has the authority over the wife. No, it puts it the two ways round. And then he says this, don't deprive one another. It's uh, wrong to deprive each other of, of, of this relationship. Except with mutual consent, he says, for a time, so that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And then he says, come together in this relationship again in case Satan tempts you because of a lack of self-control. Now what the Apostle tells, well not just the Corinthians but all of us there, is, is just very, very simply this, that, that there are times in life, perhaps when a husband and wife need to recognise that uh, something's wrong perhaps in their home or in their family, a particular situation that requires special um, fasting and prayer and this sexual abstinence here is a form of fasting really and while that time of prayer is there then they should refrain from this relationship with each other he says that, that shouldn't last he says in case Satan takes advantage of it but it's a real thing that can affect um, your prayer life and give strength to your prayer life so that reminds us that this principle here was the same. In other words, when the people here were preparing to meet with God, nothing was to get in the way of that. Nothing. I mean, the world, for these two days, that may give you an idea of the length of time that this kind of thing normally lasts. But for these two days, all these things were simply put aside. It was the encounter with God that mattered. I think there's a, a very clear application there for ourselves. A couple of things. I've been hearing recently a lot of cases where people are getting married on the Lord's Day. And ministers are married, not in, not in our own church, but ministers are marrying people on the Lord's Day. Now, that, that's not a good thing. It stands to reason that the focal point in a marriage is two people coming together. And that's what the day is going to be about. And it's simply not right that the Lord's Day be encroached upon for that. For this kind of reason. I mean, it's the Lord's Day. It's not the people's day to get married. And in fact the same is true in connection with the Lord's day itself. It is a day when these kind of things, even healthy and wholesome as they are in their own time and in their own place, well the Lord's day is not one of them. The Lord's day should be given to the worship of his name, to seeking his face in public and in private. So we are to remember that. This is the fallacy, you see, that's around today, that if something is good, then it's good on the Lord's Day. It doesn't follow. Or if something is good, then it's good to do it in worship. It doesn't follow. We need to know our Bibles, really. So consecrate yourselves. That's the first thing. And I think it's worth pointing out what the, the Directory of Public Worship says, which is one of our foundational documents as a Presbyterian church. When the congregation meet for public worship, the people ought to come 
and joined therein, having before prepared their hearts thereunto. This kind of meeting is far more than probably any of us think it is. The public assembly of worship on the Lord's Day has a primary locus in your life, or to have. And what should characterise it is the sense of the presence of God in the assembly. Therefore, we prepare ourselves there too. It's not a casual event. Therefore, by the way, don't dress casually. If, if I was if, if I was going to a well, well, suppose I was here in my jeans and in a t-shirt. Would you think I was conducting important business? Probably not. If you were here like that, I probably wouldn't think you were thinking you were going to conduct important business. Casual clothes are, well, guess what? They're for casual occasions. This is not a casual occasion. So let's just remember that. I mean, you, you may be here for the first time or whatever in casual clothes. I'm not getting it. You're not even wearing my glasses. I can't tell that. But I'm just laying that down as a principle. Remember that this is a formal meeting. And as long as such a thing as formal clothing exists to express that, let it be worn. Not a casual meeting. Let's not come casually into the house of God. But as well as consecrating themselves, they were to, Moses was to consecrate the place. He was to put a perimeter fence around Mount Sinai. Not just around the mountain, but around its base. It's like that police tape that you see. You know, you don't go beyond this. No unauthorised access. Keep out. A perimeter fence of some kind. And to cross that fence had the most serious consequences. If even a beast crossed this fence, it, it was to be shot through with a dart. If a person crossed it, then when this person was put to death, his body wasn't to be touched. In whatever way that was to be done, it wasn't to be touched on no account. The person was to be stoned at a distance or shot through with an arrow. And God says that even the priests were to observe the same regulations. Now at this point, there isn't a Levitical priesthood. The priests exist in different families and tribes before God appoints a regular priesthood. But the fact that they have a distinct office doesn't mean that they can handle these things. No, they can't. Um, Sometimes people who have office think they can do things others can't. Aaron's two sons were like that. That's in some ways the most fearful visitation of God's holiness, I think, in the Old Testament. On the very day the tabernacle was consecrated, on the very day this new building was dedicated for God, Aaron's two sons were struck dead by God for not following the correct procedure. In connection with the fire, they used strange fire to offer the sacrifice. They were careless. You'll notice the point that's been made again and again and again. Don't trifle with God. Don't trifle with God's worship. So the priests weren't to think themselves beyond this requirement. Prepare for God's presence and respect that presence. And then on the third day, God arrives. The 
the Lord descended on Mount Sinai. When this day began, the mountain just looked like it did any other time. There in the midst of the barren wilderness against a, a blazing sun. But Psalm 68 tells us that God came down. Here it tells us he came down in fire. Psalm 68 tells us that he came with thousands upon thousands of his angels. And the theophany begins, the appearance of God, the manifestation of God, with visual and audible phenomena. You've got the thunder and the lightning. And then there's that thick cloud that starts to appear around the top of a mountain. And then a distinctive fire. Now the fire is the key thing. That is the real presence of God. That's where the presence is localised. The rest are accompanying phenomena. But the fire is God himself. Accompanied with dense smoke like the smoke of a furnace. It's distinguished from the cloud. The cloud is always a symbol of his mystery. But this is the smoke that just comes directly from the fire like a furnace. Because, as the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, our God is a consuming fire. The fire represents the blazing righteousness of his holiness. Who can dwell with everlasting burnings, Isaiah says. That's God, an everlasting burning. It's no wonder that three things shook. First of all, the earth shook. Mount Sinai shook. That's not a symbol of God's presence. That's the effect of God's presence. This Sinai shook before the God of Israel. Psalm 114 tells us that the mountains skipped like lambs. Now, I think the word skip as a translation of the Hebrew there is a little bit misleading because we think of skipping as, well, when you think of a little girl perhaps skipping or something like you think of something very joyful and happy. But... The whole effect of Psalm 114 is to, uh, to produce the idea of fear. Um, the idea is of just shaking and trembling. And uh, I, I think the mountains leapt or something, or actually shook, would better convey what the writer is conveying. The, it is the fear of God that's, as it were, falling upon nature. Now, that's a kind of personification of nature. It's what's called an anthropomorphism. It's it's giving nature the ability to feel that it doesn't obviously have. But it's a, poet way, it's a poet's way of saying that the whole world knows that God is here. The world is shaking. It's giving its own um, unconscious assent to the presence of the one who is holy. Thrice holy. We're told also that the people trembled. Moses actually had to go down to their tents in order to encourage, encourage them to come to the fence. Uh, now, that was actually God's intention. Uh, chapter 20, verse 20, tells us that God wanted to produce fear in them. And uh, chapter 19 tells us that it did produce fear. When the trumpet sounded, we're told that the people shook with fear, that was an indication that God Himself was about to speak. Moses too trembled. Strangely enough, this chapter doesn't tell us that he trembled. It just tells us that as the trumpet got louder and louder, Moses spoke. It doesn't tell us what he said. 
Interestingly, the writer to the Hebrews 12 tells us what he said. He tells us that so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and tremble, or I exceedingly fear and quake. The earth shook, the people shook, and Moses shook. Tremble, O earth, before the Lord. Moses ascends the mount part way, and God says, Go back down, he says, and tell the people on no account to cross the fence. Moses says there's no need to do that. They've been warned already, to which God says, warn them again. Because if they break through, I'll break out against them. That expression, break out against them, is exactly the same term that's used for breaking out against Uzzah, when he put his hand on the ark. Whatever their intention in crossing the fence, I'll break out against it. For I am holy. Presumption will be visited with judgment. One way or another, presumption will be visited with judgment. <clears throat> now let me say, and I'm just about closing that, there's nothing more vital for us to have than a sense of God's holiness. It's fundamental to everything else. One of the ways in which you could think about that is this, that if God were to reveal himself right now to us in, in a visual way, your first response to that revelation would be fear. Whatever else might follow it, your first response would be fear. It's the most primitive, fundamental, foundational religious emotion in your heart. It's before love, it's before everything else. The sight of God simply makes you go down. He is glorious. And we are not. And since that is the primary religious motion, make sure that you keep it. Whatever else be true, let your God be great. Because God is great. That's why sometimes the whole of religion is called in the Bible the fear of God. Don't envy sinners, for example, but be in the fear of the Lord all the day long. Reverence for God should fundamentally characterise everything that we do. And let me close by saying that that is still the same. We read at the beginning something that I couldn't go into, and I can't go into just now, my time has gone, it always goes on me. In Hebrews 12, there's a picture of Sinai and a picture of Mount Sinai. And when you read that first of all, and this is the way I thought about it myself too, uh, you say to yourself, well, in the New Testament, you know, we're not coming to Mount Sinai. That's true. We're coming to Mount Sinai. What a wonderful thought that we're somehow joining, as it were, in heavenly worship, in a sense. Um, we're seeing um, an innumerable company of angels there, far more than appeared in Sinai. There's um, a better mediator there, the Lord Jesus Christ, not Moses better blood there, the blood of the Lord Jesus, not the blood with which Moses sprinkled people. There's these spirits of just men made perfect, the Old Testament saints, and on the other side there's the New Testament church being gathered, the church of the firstborn, and in the middle is God the judge of all. And we think that the fear has gone. But then strangely, the way the writer to the Hebrews uses it is not what we expect. 
He says, if, if people did not escape disobeying the God who spoke on earth, how will we escape if we disobey the God who is speaking to us now from heaven? In those days, he said, God just shook the earth, that's all he did. But he says there's a time coming when this God, the judge of all whom we worship, is going to shake the universe, which is what heaven and earth means there. It's the final cataclysmic shaking of everything. And we, he says, who have received the only thing that can't be shaken, that's the work of God and the kingdom of God in our hearts, let us serve or worship God acceptably. We all need to worship acceptably, don't we? And then he tells us how you do that. With reverence and with godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Emphasize the different words to get the full impact. Our God. Not just theirs, but ours. Is. Not just was a consuming fire, but is a consuming fire. A fire that consumes. It's a fire that will scorch through this universe looking for its own work. It'll scorch through every soul, yours and mine, looking for his own work. And isn't it wonderful when his holiness scorches through us where he finds simple faith, trust in God, and a yearning for holiness and Christ-likeness? And isn't it utterly awful when the fire scorches through your soul and finds nothing but wood, hay, and stubble? Isn't it wonderful to be found with this festival gathering in Mount Zion? Isn't it awful to be found on the outside where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth? Let us pray. <coughs> O Lord, our God, accompany all these thoughts and words with your blessing. There may be much in us and what we have thought and said that may be amiss. Uh, but uh, your spirit is well able to apply the truth of God to the hearts of needy men and women. Do so we pray in response to our prayers and in response to the intercession of the blessed Lord who will bring all his own into his kingdom. Help us as we come to this mountain to consider carefully what you say to the people, and indeed to us, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Our last uh, singing is in Psalm 99. Psalm 99. In, um, in verse 5 we read that the Lord our God exalt on high and reverently before his footstool worship him. The Holy One is he. 
think we'll just sing from verse 7, as the presenter would sing from. Within the pillar of the cloud he unto them did speak, the testimonies he them taught, and laws they did not break. It closes by saying, Do ye exalt the Lord our God, and at his holy hill do ye him worship? And here we are, for the Lord our God is holy still. The last three stanzas we can stand and sing. Within the Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all.